So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 in our series that explores the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that became synonymous with the decadence and indulgences of rock and roll in the 70s and reshaped the business of music. And he took me into the next room where there was 19-year-old David Bowie staring at me with two different colored eyes and big smile on his face, and uh, we had a great conversation. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, and Iggy Pop. The audition process is something that I have never subscribed to enthusiastically because I'm not an old-school professional musician. In this episode, we continue exploring the professional and personal rivalry between David Bowie and Mark Boland. Fifty years ago, in October 1970, Mark released the song that many music historians now cite as the catalyst that sparked the birth of glam, Ride a White Swan. Just over two minutes of pure pop that was markedly different from anything else on the charts at the time. We'll be hearing from people who lived and worked with both David and Mark to find out how they inspired each other to push creative boundaries. In early 1971, after several years of working with both David Bowie and Mark Bolan, producer Tony Visconti was told by David that he would be working with Ken Scott on his next album, Hunky Dory. So Tony was free to continue working with Mark. Here's Tony DeFries. Yes, I think what happened was David and Tony were very, very comfortable together. They understood each other. By and large, Visconti was willing, especially later on, he was willing to do what David needed because he was a believer. He was a strong believer in David from early on. And I think he was a much stronger believer in David than he was in Mark, to be honest with you. I think that Mark was a lucky opportunity for Visconti because he had the right appeal and the right feel especially with Mickey Flynn. When, when Mickey Flynn and Mark got together and they became, before they were T-Rex, they were something else, but when they became T-Rex, they had this very nice presentation. It was only three of them on stage. They, they were all sort of in the right space together and they were very appealing. And David hadn't put that together yet. He still had a lot of work to do, so... It wasn't going to happen for him right away. And it took work. It took a lot more work to get David and Ziggy to go through the hunky-dory process and the Ziggy process and to get a stage set together. David's music continued to evolve as he searched for that elusive success, as Woody recalls. It always felt, OK, sticking your neck out again. It, It had that thing about it the sound, what the songs were about, some of the words in, some of the lyrics were always a little bit, whoa, you know. So you kind of knew that you were sticking your neck out, but if it really went, it would go really well. And again, it always had that 
it's so different that it will either be loved and the fact that we loved it, then other people will as well, or because it's so far ahead, it isn't going to go. There was always that feel about it. It was almost the... that it had to have some credibility about it, you know? It had to be not copying somebody or it had to be unique in itself, you know, and every track was kind of approached like that. Yeah, you're influenced by rock and roll, obviously, and everything you've ever played, but when you're creating, that song has its own life. It lives. It's like <laughs> the Frankenstein effect, and you're trying to put that into a song so that it's... And it doesn't matter if the next one following, it's just a honky-tonk piano and somebody singing. It's to, That can have its own thing, but that one has to live for what it is trying to say, and that's what you're trying to do. And I, we tried to do that on every track. So then you put them all together, and it sounds right. David's evolution, musically and visually, was completed in the summer of 1972 with the release of the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And with Starman, David finally had the massive hit he craved. Although the band still weren't convinced about how pop it sounded. Yeah, Mick and I said, ooh, not 100% sure about that. I remember us in a van going in with a roadie somewhere, and we were going, you know, didn't know what time it was and the lights were low. Ah, ah, when I lean back. Ah, ah. On a, you know what I mean? Pushing it the cheesy side. He said, could have gone there. Ooh, is it on the edge? You know, we were questioning, is it, ooh, just a bit too much? So there was, you know, that, that was the edge. That was right on the line. It was still OK, but it was right on the... Starman was supported by a now legendary performance on Top of the Pops in July 1972 that was arranged by publicist Annual Wilson. Starman was his attempt at commercial because, you know, after being through memory of a free festival and, and holy, holy, this is finally something I can work with. They had heard from me a lot because they knew my belief in David. I, you know, they, they gave me a chance with this one. Somebody had cancelled and they called and said, can, well, can David do this? Is he free? And I said, well, yeah, he's not doing anything. And I called Tony and uh, Tony said, yeah, no, no, that would be great. But then, of course, I had to, <laughs> well, you know, nobody likes to think they're in there because of a cancellation because David had a lot of confidence with his material and, and loved it. So um, I had to fluff the fact that it was a cancellation. So I took the heat that it was uh, very last minute. One thing that I cite to as a mesmerizing moment was when we finally got on the old Grey Whistle Test, which was another cancellation. That was really tough to get him on there, uh, was when he did five years. It was a huge coup because we had been working that show for ages and uh, nobody was interested. And it was, it was the secretary there, Jenny Evans, who was a friend of mine, who gave me a call and said, quick, call Mike Appleton right now. I said, why? She said, there's been a cancellation. Is David free? I said, well, yeah. She said, well, call him. I've told him there isn't anybody else. I said, oh, if there's nobody else, she said, I don't know. I haven't called anybody. So she was helping me to get that. And uh, when he got on there, it was fabulous. And I knew, I, I mean, I knew his performance so well that when somebody saw him, the charisma came through and uh, it was a no-brainer to have him on again. Here's Woody talking about that Top of the pop session. We were in the corridor, ready to go on, and Status Quo had a single out, and they were on the same show. And Francis Rossi just looked at us, and they were in completely the opposite. 
you know, they were like old school as far as denims and hadn't bothered. They'd been wearing that all day long and we were like made up for the show. And he went, you make us feel old. You know, <laughs> it was just quite a funny moment because there's the two things lined up to go out to play. I remember the single going up the charts and going, whoa, you know, it's going. And what a difference it made when we went grocery shopping or clothes shopping in Beckenham. Before we'd been kind of struggling money-wise, now when we went in to pay for things, people wouldn't let us pay. They'd go, no, no, we saw you on, you know. It just made such a difference. We, you'd go out and you didn't spend any money and came back with all these things. It was like, hey, this is really cool. <laughs> Anya was also the person who, earlier in the year, had arranged the infamous Melody Maker article in which David declared, I'm gay and always have been. I was told to get an interview. <laughs> and we got the interview. And, of course, then he spilled all that out and made history with that magazine. <laughs> I think he wasn't above the shock tactics. And he didn't care. I mean, he totally got it right. And then it was, yes, I'm gay. And then it was, yes, I'm bisexual. And what we noticed with a lot of fans and working class towns, whatever, would come to the gigs. They would dress up like Ziggy. They would uh, all say, I'm gay, I'm bisexual, whether they were or not. And it was quite revolutionary. It did a lot for sexual freedom. He wanted to be a certain person. And, uh, yeah, God, Britain at that time with gay was, was uh, I mean, could you still get locked up for being gay in those days? The worst thing was what put us off media for a while was when he wore that Mr. Fish dress. And we had a problem with that because when the publicity for that went out, literally, when trying to get him on TV, I was told by one of the producers who used to produce to, uh, occasionally Top of the Pops and a specialty show that, you know, they didn't have perverts on their show because of the nature of his material. Bowie and Bolan led the way as glam completely transformed music and society in general in the early 70s. And the visual aspect was just as important as the music and was also a factor in Mark and David's rivalry. Here's Tony DeFries. Well, visually, I'd say that you could say that Mark was prettier than David when they were both in their early 20s or even in their teens because Mark had very, very specific features like, like a little elf. He was very elfish. And he had a, in fact, they called him the bopping elf at one stage, I think. But he did have that almost perfect proportion of scale. So as a small person, he was like a little perfect small person. David was never quite that way. David was always um, a bit too thin, a bit too long, a bit too awkward. He was slightly awkward. He, he, and... Um, he was slightly a boy, slightly a girl. He was not your perfect man or your perfect boy or your perfect girl, but somewhere in between. But he was androgynous. Mark wasn't really androgynous. Mark was really a small, beautiful boy and a small, beautiful elf boy. He was very Tolkien, very, um, very much like that ideal elf creature. Um, and that's why girls liked him a lot. But in terms of personality and capability, he was very lightweight compared to David. He didn't have the same sort of conversational capabilities or intellectual capabilities. He didn't think past the 
simplistic of how do I get to be noticed. And getting noticed really started for him when he got caught up with these uh, music magazines, which were really teen magazines, magazines that were um, popular with young girls, the Jackie magazines and magazines like that, who found him to be a great subject. You could dress him up. And, and it was actually, I think, girls who started dressing him up. The girls who were doing the editing work on the magazines realised that they could start getting him costumes and clothes that weren't necessarily girls' clothes and that they could dress him up and they could do eye makeup and they could do mascara or glitter or other things that would normally only be seen on a girl and so would look quite cute on this um, elfish boy and make him very appealing. So in a way you could call that the beginning of glitter. I'm not really sure it's the beginning of glam because glam, for me at least, glam was more about making a rock and roll performance, a theatrical performance. I mean, this was what I always saw as the way to make David uniquely different and uniquely successful was to give him a performance, to put him, to put him on stage as an actor in a role and to do what Presley had been doing for quite a long time. Presley had been performing both as Presley on stage and as Presley in the movies as an actor. And that was the sort of thing that initially encouraged me to think that there was room to do things on stage and in film if you had the right person. And of course the right person wasn't that easy to find because a lot of people tried, a lot of people tried to, for example, attempts to make Mick Jagger into a film star completely failed because Mick doesn't have the ability to step outside of himself and be a different person. He got stuck in being Mick Jagger and he's never been able to get out of it. He wasn't Mick Jagger before a certain period and then all of a sudden he became Mick Jagger, probably after Brian died, maybe slightly before. But from that point on he couldn't step away, he couldn't become somebody else. And that's difficult. Um, you look at Sinatra, Sinatra did manage to step away from being Sinatra and become a different Sinatra in later life. And that's very hard to do. Not many uh, performers get to do that, not many actors get to do that. So that was something that David had to deal with from the very beginning. Before I met him, he was dealing with that. But what he and I managed to do in that short time frame was find a way to do it convincingly and then to step away from it to stop being Ziggy and become something else When Ziggy was in full pomp, David inhabited the role even when he was off stage, as George Underwood saw on several occasions David wanted to wear something which uh, caused someone to look at them twice rather than just the once, you know 
We went to the 1972 American tour. Uh, my wife and I were invited over for that. We we spent three months with David on the road in that tour. And um, on the way, we were on the QE2 and he wore a, a Ziggy outfit to dinner and wondered why everyone was looking at him. Yeah, it's funny. And then he decided not to come down to dinner again. And for five days, he laid in bed all the time. He was in bed all the time. I said, well, come on. He says, no, no, everyone's looking at me. He says, what do you expect when you put a bloody great big what a white Freddie Barreto made this it's almost like an it was pure white Ziggy outfit you know with the big things up here when he walked into the dining hall you know you want to see people's faces I mean there were a lot of old people in there you know but they weren't all old people but mostly but they were just like and all the time we're eating you know sort of, people looking turning around looking it's just uh, when we went to the States, I mean, whew, you know, no one had ever seen anything like that before. It wasn't just a costume either. It was it was a whole persona. And I think later on, you know, it rather took him over uh, in a sense that uh, I think he wanted to take that mantle off that was kind of quite heavy on him. You know, it, it served its purpose. You know, David was so brave, I thought. I always think that to do what he did. Think back to 72, things hadn't changed much really about, you know, androgynous people were still kind of frowned on slightly. You didn't know whether they didn't know if he was a boy or a girl. The makeup element of glam was part of a showbiz tradition going back many years, but just taken to artistic extremes. Any man that had eyeliner or dark, you know, Elvis was probably one of the first ones. But, I mean, little Richard, it was covered in makeup. Ain't I pretty, you know, and my skin smooth. But in fact, it was very full of makeup, you know. It was very much theatrical uh, thing. Uh, hold on, who else was there? I remember David actually citing Sid Barrett as being the first person he remember seeing, uh, you know, with eye makeup on in this country. Uh, Screaming Lord Such and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, all those semi-theatrical rock and roll bands all had some kind of uh, theatrical makeup of some kind. Oh, Sensational Alex Harvey, Steve Miller on the front of the cover, uh, the Joker. You know, he's got all makeup. Then there's Kiss, isn't it? It's all those bands. Now, David wasn't probably the first, but he was the first one to make popular music with it, if you like. Among the many American artists who arrived in London in 1972, inspired by the music being created by David and Mark, was Iggy Pop. I'm not an old-school professional musician. Um, I'm a cultural musician. Had I come here alone, I think I could have thrown together the trogs on heroin and probably uh, done some songwriting myself and recruited good writers to help me uh, flesh that out. I came in with a musical vision that was already in progress, when I got here, and uh, it became refined and defined by my reactions to British culture. In general, a world stage macrocosmically and then specifically the first stirrings of glam and uh, really a neo-invasion that was being formed here. And the biggest positive influence on us here were, were really the Mark Bolin records that were being made at the time. Those were fine records. Then we were aware of 
what David Bowie was doing, of course, because he was, uh, you know, he was someone we saw a lot of, and we'd always been keenly aware of everything Lou Reed did. And uh, both James and I were big listeners to uh, both editions of the Velvet Underground. Loaded was a great record uh, that's, that probably doesn't get its due compared to the, the Banana, the Ubiquitous Banana album, but uh, which had some great, great songwriting on it. So we were, we were aware of uh, what David was doing more culturally than musically. The, musically, it was... Uh, more melody-based and uh, different than what we were looking to do. But Mark Bolin and uh, Lou Reed were two people we really looked up to. There was a freshness, a fresh and uplifting quality that was not overbalanced toward the melody or the groove. There was a genuine groove, which is a place where some of the British music can fall down in favor of too much melody and yet there was really really good melody and he kept it light and it was just uh, remarkably uh wonderful to listen to and some really really simple inventive production in a way he put together uh it was like he mated uh, Joni Mitchell and Chuck Berry somehow and then there's Dylan there's Bob Dylan in there and uh all sorts of things you know and visually as well, that whole period, because people in the UK hadn't seen the New York Dolls or anybody in makeup, it was unusual for, for, for guys to be as that visually open. We were, we were visually uh, influenced and pressured by what was going on in Britain at the time, absolutely. And uh, we went to Mark's show at Wembley, and I'll never forget the humor and ego cheek he showed by having uh, the opening act play in front of a 15-foot cardboard cutout of him <laughs> that just stood and posed on the stage while these poor sods tried to, tried to do their thing. And he came out and gave a beautiful set. And, uh, and yeah, David would come around in his gigantic lavender platform heels with a, a new hair color every week and we'd all go off and drink uh, tea at Small's Cafe and uh, you know this led to all sorts of uh, ramifications within the group and you, you can see on the on the back of the Raw Power album James's kabuki makeup uh, and uh, my black lipstick absolutely in reaction yeah sure very human, you know. These guys down the street are doing it. <laughs> well, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do that too. Anya Wilson ended up working with both David and Mark for eight years, so she saw their relationship evolve. I found them very, very different. I think David may have been inspired by what Mark was doing, but David went so much further. There was a little bit of a feeling, I must admit. But then again, David is magic, so he would make sure that he and Mark got together. And then it was all fine, you know, if they got together on a personal level. The thing is, I will say, one thing I noticed with the live, David surrounded himself with great players, and we always had good sound. Mark had good players, but a very small band, and I always found, uh, sadly, that they had, I don't know, I've forgotten who they had for sound, but the sound was always bad. That is so sad because Mark was so magic. By 1974, 
David's career was in overdrive while Mark's life was in decline. The last time I saw him was probably in 74 when we were performing Diamond Dogs, which had turned into the Thin White Duke actually by that time at the um, Universal Amphitheatre in Los Angeles. And we had done a long run there. We played to tens of thousands of people, I think probably more than 40,000 people, 50,000 people. Everyone had come to see us. Raquel had come and Diana had come and all the Jacksons had come. Many, many, many uh, movie stars had come. Sinatra came. David wanted Sinatra to come back. He said, you have to get Sinatra to come back. I said, David, I can't get Sinatra to come back. He'd come to see you once and that's probably all that's going to (laughs) happen. Elizabeth Taylor came and tried to persuade David to make a foolish film. Everybody came, and everybody had a wonderful time. But of course, when Mark came, he didn't have such a good time because he saw that David had really conquered America, and he hadn't. He saw that David had a huge following across a very, very broad spectrum, and he didn't have that in America. And he was very out of it. He was on a variety of different drugs. He'd put on a lot of weight, which wasn't good for him. He was small. His fingers were as fat as sausages. David was very kind. He was very gracious. But he eventually got tired of trying to talk to Mark, who was a little incoherent. And Mark was frankly in danger of ODing and Melanie and I and Z walked him around the Beverly Wilshire uh, suite that we were in until he had recovered enough that we were confident that he wouldn't die on us. This did happen in those days. People did um, succumb if you didn't keep them moving. You couldn't afford to let people lie down. And then he moved on. That was the last I saw of them, 1974. And Mark was never going to do something as elaborate and extravagant as Diamond Dogs or Ziggy Stardust. That wasn't in his handbook, if you like. Whereas David always wanted to have a rock opera. He always wanted to have a Tommy. He always wanted to have some major piece of work that he could keep working through and keep adding to. He was always building, as opposed to just making a quick, let's have a one-room single here. David wanted to build a huge house of work, and he did. Uh, Hard work. David's biggest talent was his ability to be anybody you wanted him to be. And ultimately, that's the stamp of the perfect entertainer, the perfect actor, even the perfect companion, is that they can be anyone you want. David had that, Mark didn't have that. Both very sweet, but the real difference between them. Early in 1974, Tony Visconti parted ways with Mark, who continued on to produce his own albums. And in March, Tony received a phone call from David. I had not worked with David Bowie for several years after The Man Who Sold the World, 
we did meet occasionally for a, a social event or going out to a theater or something like that. But uh, I was surprised when he called me to um, get advice on how to mix his album Diamond Dogs. He said he tried every studio in town but couldn't get good results. And uh, at the time, I was building my own home studio. I had one of the first home studios in the UK where, you know, this was serious. I had a 16-track machine and a Trident console. It was the real deal. So um, David came over that night with his multi-track tape, and we put it on the machine, and he loved what he heard. And that's what brought us back together again since The Man Who Sold the World. So that's a brief look at the professional and personal rivalry between two rock legends, Bowie and Bolan. There are some great photographs and fascinating articles, telexes and letters from the Main Man archive from the glorious glam era that's part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia. A lot of it never seen before that we are adding to the Main Man label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, we'll delve into the Main Man archives to hear from another very important larger-than-life character who deeply influenced David in his formative years, mime legend Lindsay Kemp. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>